course, that's the theme to Finding Nemo. Everyone's aware of that, that, <laughs> that has a child. But obviously, how many, how, how many people remember this when it came out the first time? All right, you're going to age yourself bad right here, I'm just telling you. Okay, 1975. Yeah, 1975. Jaws made, has made a half a billion dollars since that period of time. Steven Spielberg's second big movie. And you hear that iconic theme that composer John Williams wrote. John Williams wrote a few kind of decent things, you know, like Star Wars and Schindler's List. And it, it, the, the story goes that when he played the theme on the piano for Steven Spielberg, Spielberg laughed in his face because it's just two notes. And yet when you hear that now, you immediately think what? Shark. I, I, I don't care if you're as old as Daryl Green. I was, I was, I was joking with Daryl last week when we were showing the video for Pastor Brett's 25th and you know, Daryl is just, he's such a love bug, and he was talking about just, he got a little choked up there. And I said, you know, I think you got sad when you said, I'm 56 years old, and then he started to cry. <laughs> but we remember, 1975, we remember, Josh, we were all waiting for the shark to show up. Remember that? And just so you'll know, I mean, now shark's big business, just so you know, it's Shark Week on Discovery Channel right now. But we were waiting, and we hear that iconic theme, and we immediately think, shark. But there was one line from that movie that has become a meme. It's become, if you wish, part of the culture. And you remember the line, and it was simply this, wasn't it? We need a bigger boat. Some of you don't get this. Some of you need to go rent this movie, I'm just telling you. Because, I mean, these were like cool effects back in 1975. But, of course, the story there is that Roy Schneider, who's one of the three guys on this boat, finally gets a glimpse of this fish. And you just see him backing up and backing up and backing up. And he comes in and he tells the captain, having finally seen this shark, we're going to need a bigger boat to get this done. For us to be safe, we're going to need a bigger boat. And that is my sermon title this morning, We Need a Bigger Boat. A few weeks ago, Pastor Steve Robinson came and did a masterful job on how to live and stand in fearful times. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be continuing on this, on this vein of how then do we live? I don't think it's any secret to anyone, both in or out of the church, that we have found ourselves in pretty uncharted waters, to take the analogy a little bit further. Depending on the survey and what you're reading, is that we are definitely living in a post-Christian culture. I don't think anybody has to, I don't think that's open for debate. I think we all would agree with that, nod your head. And there are issues and legislation and things happening that are now in public discourse and the public consciousness that, quite frankly, five years ago, ten years ago, certainly even a generation ago, we wouldn't have talked about in private, but that now, here they are. And we are finding ourselves in, in, in very, very interesting times. 
and trying to understand, one, what is the church's response? How do we live now as a church in this moment? But then how do we become the church in order to know how to live? And these are some of the questions that we're going to be talking about. But as I begin to consider this topic, how do we live? And we could all come up with the list of the things that we need to, quote, do in order to figure that out because the emphasis becomes on us. It becomes on our behavior, our preparation. But then God began to bring me up short. He said, you're missing the entire point. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Because I believe any discussion of how then should we live must begin right here. Isaiah, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Say that with me. I saw the Lord. He was seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Then it goes on and talks about what's happening around him. Seraphs, bunch of wings, flying, calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth, say the whole earth, is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, it says the doorpost and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And let me say, this was not some charismatic or Pentecostal prayer meeting. This was a revelation that I would submit to you that you and I need today more than ever before. Isaiah saw God. Where was he? On a throne. What does a throne always represent? Rule and authority. Let me just tell you, I just say this by way of introduction. You and I need to see God in charge. We see everybody else trying to be in charge. You and I need a fresh revelation. He is still on the throne today. He is high. He is exalted. He fills everything in every way. The only issue is not whether or not that's true. The only issue is like Isaiah, do you see it? Let me just tell you, your current state of revelation about where God is, how God's ruling, how God is high and lifted up above all the stuff, let me tell you, it doesn't change where God is in God's stature today. It only changes how you live and how you respond to it. But here we see a response. Isaiah sees God in this state. And the first thing he says is, I'm a dead man. I'm done. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen God. You see, this wasn't Isaiah trying trying to figure out how to better himself. Self-improvement, the principle of sowing and reaping, and if I do right, I'll get right. 
This was a man who had come face to face with a recognition of his condition and how ruined he was. Isaiah was just hoping for survival through the moment of this revelation. People talk about, yeah, I, 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 I was with God. Jesus and I, we, we had a latte together. An angel came and visited me. You know, whenever I hear somebody use that language, I know, you know, somebody visited you, but it won't God. <laughs> Mary was troubled at Gabriel's greeting. Most people that had a real encounter with God, they were just hoping to live through it. Not a matter of whether or not I'm going to get on CNN or, you know, TBN or write me a book and start a blog. It's a matter of, am I going to live through the moment? This is, what, this is what Isaiah was just, woe to me. Woe to me. And I believe that any understanding of how we should live in this moment must begin with seeing God on that throne. It has to begin, and ultimately it has to end right there. And it begins, number one, by right-sizing God. You know, we've got all kinds of sizes now, don't we? We've got grandes and ventes and however you say gallon in Italian. <laughs> which I'm not sure, you know. Pole and an IV, you know. I mean, uh, And we need to right-size God. Now, let me say to you quickly, God's already right-sized himself, but you and I have to get him right-sized. Is God only as large as your last challenge? And for many of us, God never gets bigger than our current need or our last one. God, I need you big enough for this bill. I need you big enough for this health challenge. I need you big enough for this crisis in my marriage. I need you big enough for my job. But listen to me, if God is only as big as your last challenge, he won't be big enough for the next one. And I'd love to tell you there won't be any more. The problem is it would be a lie. You'd feel good for a moment until you had to go back to work tomorrow. Or maybe even get in the car and drive home with your family. And you know, the misnomer of life is that somehow it's getting simpler or easier. Right? I mean, we keep hearing this, you know, about life's going to get simpler. We get these kids out of the house, get these college loans paid for, it's going to be me and my, it's going to be great. We just, oh man, it's going to get, we're going to downsize, we're going to get rid of some of this junk. We have to say simpler, easier, and you can buy magazines and you can read books about it, whatever. I got to tell you, it ain't getting any simpler and any easier for me. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but somehow I must have read the wrong book because it's not getting easier. It's not getting simpler. Evil's getting more creative. Do you understand? Evil's getting more creative. I mean, back in high school, when I went to high school, yes, I rode the horse and all that. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) 
But you know, we solve conflicts by going behind the gym after school, pushing each other three times and calling it a fight, and we were done. I mean, that's, that's how conflict got resolved. Not anymore. Evil's getting more creative. Situations in and around our lives increasingly complex. My wife and I are working with some, in some situations right now, and you know, the days of, okay, memorize these three scriptures, read this book, love one another more deeply, and be warm and filled. And you know, it used to be that about 99 out of 100 times, that would almost work. But I got to tell you, we're facing some situations right now that we're looking at each other and we're going, huh? And I'm finding myself increasingly running out of me faster. My wisdom, my experience, my history, my understanding of what God did, it's not getting it done in this moment the way that it did in a previous day. And we understand that it's a right-sized God is a sovereign God, which means he's above all. He's above everything. And it contextualizes the hardship in our life. Let me tell you, if you don't understand God being on the throne, then hardship and suffering that you face, you're only left with one conclusion. God's asleep at the switch. That's all you're left with. I mean, we say, God is good. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. I mean, we got that. We don't believe it, but we say it like we believe it. But honestly, until you understand something that God is still in charge, then hardship and suffering make no sense. He told us in John 16, I've told you this, I've told you. I've told you, in me, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Take heart of, overcome the world. Overcoming the world is from where? The throne. He's in charge. He's sovereign. Nothing's getting by his purview or outside of his divine permission. Now, I just really messed your theology up bad in that statement. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought the devil was in charge of this world, the prince of this world. I thought he was. Who made him? Uh-oh. Do you realize he's simply a created being? And if you read the back of the book, if you read the back of the book, there's a moment that God says, out of the pool. That's it. You're done. And we wonder why the devil's so mad. You know, if somebody told you this is your last day, you get a little frantic as you saw the calendar date approach. You get nuts. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. For the sake of time, I'll just read the middle of it. But it talks about, for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, but these have come. So that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
faith. You mean this thing I'm in right now? Yeah. And that word faith, I mean, that's a problematic word for us. I mean, talk to 10 believers and they'll give you 10 definitions. But let me make it simple for you this morning. Faith is simply trust. That's all it is. Faith is simply trust, not only that God will do what God said he would do, but trust is in the nature and character of God that his timing and his ways are as perfect as his promises. You see, we don't have those things married yet. Oh, we got the promises part. I mean, we declare and decree and we, I mean, we stomp and we stand and we name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. We got the promises down. What we don't got down is the nature and character of God is that how and when he works these promises out may come packaged in a way we don't always like very much. Because he's about developing something in you and in me as a result. Gosh, don't like this message much. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I've, I've studied the Greek deeply here. The word all, it means all. <laughs> There's nothing hidden or obscured in this word. It means all authority. That means over everything, including the devil. I'm getting ahead of myself for a moment. But listen, saints, he's either Lord over all or he's Lord over none, both now and forever. And this includes governments, leaders, economies, the whole thing. Any other authority is here on a temporary visa. All authorities here on a temporary work permit that at some point it's going to be, you're done. Watch this. Proverbs 21. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. You want to stay sane during this, this coming election cycle? This is not about Republican and Democrat and blue state and red state and conservative and liberal and all this. It's a matter of God's going to put there who God wants there. And you can say, huh? <laughs> Read the history of Israel. God often put kings and leaders over that nation to work something out in that nation. To work something out in that people primarily as to who God really was. And we wring our hands and we say, ah! You know, at any moment God can say, okay, I'm done. Your heart's not going to beat anymore. It's that simple. This process is in his hands. Psalm 102 verse 15. It says, the nations, plural, will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will revere your glory. Now, we may not see that in 2016 or 2017, but at some point, every government and every authority, every knee will bow. Let me just say that. And while we may not be seeing it worked out in the natural today, in heaven, it's already that way. There is no question 
as to who's in charge. Isaiah chapter 23, verse 9. It says, God planned it to bring the pride, to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. You see, God will intervene when and how he sees fit based on this, his nature and his character. Have you ever looked around and say, I don't know why God doesn't just... Seriously. We look at certain situations on the planet and we marvel at why doesn't God just do that thing that God does? Hail or frogs or something. And then we read... A passage like Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. Let me tell you, when God moves, you'll know it. We've seen God intervene in the affairs of man many times. Tower of Babel, plagues of Egypt. Pentecost. And let me tell you, when God moves, we're not going to need the theologians to break it down for us. Trust me. We're not going to need a table full of commentators on your favorite, favorite news outlet to talk over each other and try to explain it. Get the leading atheists and agnostics and scientists and whatever of the day. Let me just tell you, when God moves on the earth, everybody's going to know, not just the church. And this is the perspective, saints, we've got to adopt in these days. And let me just tell you this. God is continually getting either larger or smaller to you right now. God does not stay static. And it's the circumstances of life that are the catalyst for God getting right-sized for you. Some people go, they, 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 they go through a crisis or they go through a hardship and somehow God, quote, fails them and God gets smaller. The enemy won one. And in every situation you face, listen to me, saints, God's either getting bigger or God's either getting smaller. But in right-sizing God, we also have to do this. We have to right-size the devil. But you can't do that until you right-size God. The prerequisite, you got to get God in the right place, in the right size, before you can right-size the devil. There are two mistakes that Christians make regarding the devil. One, they make him too small, or two, they make him too big. One or the other. Too small as half of evangelical believers don't believe the devil even exists. He is just an embodiment, a philosophy of evil. Therefore, it's, 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 he's not an entity. He's not, we don't have to worry about, quote, him. That's pretty good disguise. And yet he's very real. We know that, do we not? But there's this dangerous dualism that happens many times in believers. That somehow there is this quest going between good and evil and will the devil win this one or will God win this one and, and, and since it's been fueled many times by Christian fiction that if God's people would just pray more then God could do a little something something let me help you 
Let me help right-size you for a moment. God appreciates your efforts. He does. But he kind of, like he told Job, uh, excuse me, where were you when I did all this? You were not there at creation. And as much as we would like to give ourselves credit for God's victory, let me just tell you, you don't get any. Now, am I saying that we don't do? Yes, we pray, we cooperate, we participate. But because a loving Father lets us help Him, He lets us participate, but He doesn't need us. At any given moment, oh, oh, ISIS, oh my goodness, God could just say, uh, talk about smart bombs, they would all drop dead in their spots. Don't tease yourself. God can do this. But somehow, some, we've, we've overplayed our role in Satan's defeat and demise. It's already been scripted, as I've said before. And the script wasn't written as a result just of Jesus' resurrection. The script was written long before God ever separated light and darkness. God had this plan in place forever of how he was going to deal with this. And yet we live in a tumultuous world where it can seem that the devil is in charge and God is seemingly hard to find. You know why? Because we haven't right-sized God and we've oversized or supersized the devil. And we see storms and challenges and the enemy appears. And we don't know many times the nature of the timing of that storm. I'd love to know. I mean, there were there were probably one or two investors around the world that probably Thursday morning would love to have known about Brexit. Put in a lot of sell orders on Thursday and a lot of buy orders on Monday. A lot of folk would like to know, what is the next storm that's coming? Many times we don't know. I got to tell you, ignorance is bliss. I'm kind of glad sometimes I don't know about all these things coming in the world. Job had no idea. Have you considered my servant Job? Please don't. A righteous man. I mean, Job just living with his family, a businessman, doing great. The next thing you know, I mean, his life just falls to pieces. He had no idea of the storms or the nature of the storms getting ready to come to his life. Just no idea. Years ago, I had a, a boat. Now, please Wow, Pastor Jim had a boat. No, it was an overgrown bathtub. Let me tell you what this boat was. Because <laughs> they say the happiest moments of a man's life is the day he gets the boat and the day he gets rid of the boat. And that's true. Because this boat almost got me killed more than once. But it was this little 12-foot wooden boat called a John boat. It's designed for, like, ponds, you know. Little 12-foot motor on the back of it sounded like a mosquito on steroids. All right, give you some idea of what this boat really is and what it's not. Well, of course, you know, men don't use things according to their specifications. So, of course, I took it down to open water in the coast of North Carolina. Of course. 
And there is this body of water called the Intracoastal Waterway, which is, is wide and deep. And, it, and so you, without being in the ocean or in the sound, it, it allows ocean-going vessels to get to where they need to go. So I'm out puttering around, and I invited my pastor at the time who happened to have a real boat, like a 30-some-odd footer that you could actually go out in. I said, let's go fishing. So we jump in this 12-foot boat, and he's kind of looking now understand, it's just it's just plywood and Elmer's glue. You gotta understand what this boat is. I'm not even talking fiberglass. It's a wood boat, the boot. Somehow wound up in the intracoastal waterway behind an oil tanker in the middle of the wake with about eight feet of water on both sides of me. And I'm thinking. I don't know where this boat's going, but so am I. <laughs> you know, because I don't, I don't have a passport on me, but the reality is I have no way to get out of this thing. I mean, wall of water on each side and realizing in this moment, the only way out is to jump this wall of water. So I opened up this mosquito motor. <laughs> And hit that wall. This boat is airborne. <laughs> this boat is never supposed to be airborne. I mean, this guy that's with me is like <laughs> holding on. And we slam down on the other side of this wall of water. I'm expecting splinters to fly everywhere. And he looked back at me. He said, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> But I had no idea when I went out that day, I needed a bigger boat. I had no idea I was going to find myself in that place, hemmed in on the left, hemmed in on the right, not having what I really needed in that moment to navigate where I had found myself. I was just in it all of a sudden. Y2K, people were prepping for the world coming to an end. Remember that? A couple of numbers out of place, and all of a sudden, gravity was going to get switched off, and people were going to float off into space. It was terrible. <laughs> I was pastoring a church in North Carolina at a time, and folks in my church went nuts. I mean, they're buying propane and spam and Twinkies and buying, <laughs> buying gun, because Twinkies last for like 100 years. I mean, it's a great survival food. I mean, I mean, they're buying guns and ammo. I mean, they're just ready for the zombie apocalypse, right? And we get up the next morning, it's the new millennium. It's just like, lights on, TV's on, gravity's working. It's all good. Preppers, ever watch those guys on Nat Geo? Preparing for the disaster du jour. I love these guys. Some of them are preparing for the zombies. Some are preparing for the poles to be reversed. Some are preparing for economic and government meltdowns. So, I mean, they've all got their own disaster they're preparing for. It always, it, it kind of tickles me that I wonder if this guy would be preparing for this disaster another one comes. I mean, it, the reality is, <laughs> whoops, got that one wrong. But, you know, it wasn't until in this movie that Roy Schneider took a good look at that fish and he realized my boat's not big enough. 
Some of you have seen the fish. You've had a good look at him. He's big, he's bad, got lots of teeth, and he wants to eat you. John 10.10 says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet, we have a bigger boat. You know the most famous boat story in history, it's the story of the ark. Trying to find it, we rebuilt, we are rebuilding one now in a theme park. I mean, it's fascinating. But that ark represents not only God's salvation, that ark is a type of Jesus himself in the Old Testament. It represents God's plan for us. It represents God's presence to us. There was another ark that was representative of God's very presence, the Ark of the Covenant. Interestingly enough, made out of the very same wood that that boat was made out of. God's protection through the storm. It's fascinating. It says that God shut them in, meaning Noah and his family. You see, being shut in with him means that we're being shut out of those things that are raging outside. Psalm 91, he who dwells will rest in the shadow of. You know that passage. And it says that during this flood, where everything on the earth is being wiped out, it says that the ark floated. We don't get the idea that the ark is rolling and pitching from side to side and taking on water. And, you know, Noah's voice, get out there and bail. (laughs) You don't get that picture at all. It says that as they were shut into that boat, it says the ark floated above. Listen to me, saints. God wants you to float above. It doesn't matter what waters cover the earth. Let me just tell you, God has always known. And there is the ark of God's presence, God's protection, God's provision for you in this moment. But you've got to allow God to get bigger. You know what, some of, what that means for some of you? It means the news that you are imbibing needs to change. Whose report will you believe? Some of us are so fixated on all the stuff out there that invariably gets bigger because it's getting all the press. But here's the press. I saw God seated on the throne, high and exalted. And saints, that is our message. We need fresh revelation and spiritual eyes to see the ark who is God. Get in it. Get on board. See him beyond and above all. We used to sing this old song, and the things of earth will go strangely dim. That's a right-sizing of everything else but him. Pray with me. Lord, help us this morning see what Isaiah saw. You say in Colossians that our life is now hidden with you. Lord, let us get a perspective of your right size today. God, from Isaiah to John the Revelator, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. God, let that be our testimony. Not a hand-wringing of wondering and worrying about when you're going to show up and do a thing. God, let us see you in that place. Above all. If you're here today and you feel like that your life's just out of control. Pastor, I, I, I just, it's not, it, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. I'm just one crisis and calamity after the next. It's time to get in an ark of place, safety. And that safety is found in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've never had a moment that you've come to know him for who he is, the son of God, come to dwell on the inside of you who's prepared a place for you in heaven. If you've never had that moment of recognition, slip your hand up. I want to pray with you right now. Anyone at all. This is the place of safety. See that hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Those of you that raised your hand, just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I know my life has been far from right. But I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me of my sins. And Lord, now I invite you into my heart to come and live. Be Lord, that we might dwell together forever.